You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. Jeff Tane Watts is a jazz musician, drummer, and composer based in Easton, Pennsylvania. With five Grammy Awards on his resume, Jeff has had a lengthy recording career as a sideman to many prominent jazz artists, including Branford and Wynton Marsalis, to name a few. Jeff now leads his own band and composes his own recordings on his own record label, Dark Key Music, along with his explosive power and speed and the mastery of complex rhythms and time signatures, Jeff's style is at once elegant, composed, and yet very gritty at the same time. His latest recording, Blues Volume 1, is available now and receiving widespread critical acclaim. guest today is a uh, legendary jazz musician. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be joined this morning by Jeff Tane Watts. Jeff, thanks for uh, joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here. Um, we are fortunate in this region that there are, um, you know, even though we're in eastern Pennsylvania and we're outside of the metropolitan, you know, centers on in the Northeast Corridor, New York and Philly and, and all of that, that there's a lot of great musicians and artists that are in our region that I think not a lot of people realize um, that live here. So, um, you know, you moved to Easton, Pennsylvania, a few years back. When did you When did you move into uh, Easton? It's it's been about two and a half years. So I guess what is that since 2013 or something like the fall of 2013? I guess yeah. And and you were coming from where were you in Brooklyn before that or I was I was in Brooklyn for for many years before that and um and then there was a period of time right before I moved to Easton where I wanted to just feel the the commute from Pennsylvania and and uh, you know have a have a family situation for my I have, I have a young family so I so there was a period of time when I was both in Brooklyn and in the Poconos in East Stroudsburg I was renting a house there for about a year and a half. And then I found the place in Easton and moved there. What was it about... Now, in, in East Stroudsburg also has, you know, does have sort of this, um, you know, kind of what I would call a New York expat community. You know, the Poconos are, are you know, affordable place to live. It's it's relatively easy to get back and forth yeah. uh, by car. Um, why, why Easton? What was, what drew you to that city? It was, I think it was more about the property. Um, while while I was in the Poconos, I had space to stretch out. I had space for my kids, but um, it was um, a little remote from for my wife, and she wanted access to, you know, more city like things. So it just it just felt um, 
whenever I whenever I whenever I finally discovered Easton, it was nice to be in a small town as opposed to, um, you know, like the kind of mountain type of thing that's going on in the right. Pocahontas, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's some type of thing up there. We're not sure. <laughs> yeah. We're not, <laughs> we're not sure what it is. Yeah. But um, now the the property you're referring to is actually a, a really um, unique space that you've turned into a recording studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the sanctuary? Okay. Well, the sanctuary was the fifth Lutheran church of Eastern, Eastern Pennsylvania. I guess it was uh, originally built in 1875, and um, you know, whenever whenever I was relocating from the city, I wanted a place that was cool for the family, and in addition, I wanted to at least be able to do some pre-production and uh, have some flexibility with practice on my instrument and things like that. So that led me to um, more industrial types of spaces. So I was looking on websites and looking at old factories and places to convert, you know, just mostly for the headroom, for the, for the ceiling height to, to facilitate recording with, with some quality and, you know, some color. And so, um, I was on one of these sites and, uh, and I saw this church in between that, a friend of mine, they came to me and they said, you know what, if you're looking for a place with some space, you should, you should consider churches because they're, they're relatively inexpensive. And so I started looking around and I went to see some churches like in like small, you know, busted towns in Pennsylvania. Like I went to Coldale and I went to all these like really kind of sketchy towns for, for, for my taste at the time. And, uh, but then I saw, I became aware of this place in Easton. And so one day I had to come to Allentown to uh, have my, my laptop repaired. So we drove down from the Poconos and I went to, uh, went to some shop and I, I dropped off my laptop to, uh, to retrieve some data. And they said, okay, well, you have, you know, come back in about three hours. And so we took the kids for a snack. And then I said, look, you know, let's go see this property. So I went to see it. And, um, it was pretty crazy. It's like um, I, I walked in from the street, and uh, the previous owner had a, had his his staff there. He had a staff of about maybe like fifteen people working and editing video and recording things and doing you know doing all kinds of kinds of studio related activities. And so um, I walked in and I saw initially the um, the main church uh, room, which is a a three hundred seat church. That has a uh, you know vaulted ceilings and gothic arches and it has a working pipe organ. It has a you know it still has the the bell tower intact. That I whenever whenever people come to visit, I insist that they go and ring the bell, which is kind of funny. But um you know so that that was like a, like a very impressive room. And then I went downstairs and there was in the basement of the of the church. There's a um, there's an actual just normal tracking studio where that most musicians would be satisfied with, you know, with isolation booths and, you know, nice dry room and stuff like that. And uh, a couple of control rooms. So from, for myself as a drummer, that was already like, you know, more than, you know, more than I, I could have dreamed of. But, um, the whole facility consists of a, a, a three bedroom house, which serves as directory for the pastor. And that's where we live most of the time. Um, next door to that is, uh, is the original church, uh, 
that was built in 1875. So this is a room that's probably about 1,400 square feet with 22-foot ceilings and, uh, you know, arched thing, arched ceiling and and a beautiful stained glass and all that. And that room serves as my family room. So I watch football. <laughs> <laughs> I watch the Steeler game in there. In other yeah. words, that's what I do in there. And then uh, there's so that's the original church. And then next to that is the the the, the church that serves as the studio, the 300 seat church that was it was probably built like 20 years later, something like that. And so there's that. And then at the at the back of the the building, all all of these buildings are connected, and it's 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 huge. And so at at the back there's a an actual Sunday school building. So there's a Sunday school building with a with a with a second kitchen, very large church kitchen. And upstairs there's a couple of classrooms that uh, the previous owner was using as offices offices. But um, since we've had the studio, I've been using them for um, visiting artists, and they can just you know they can just stay in their own wing, and it's really great. You you can hardly. You could hardly have designed a more perfect space for what you wanted to do. It sounds like. I mean, that's pretty, uh, pretty astonishing. Yeah, I mean, you just have a lot of choices. You have a lot of options. There's, you know, there's three cool places to record in there. Um, I mean, the the best thing for me as a drummer is that um, my my five year old girls can go to sleep at nine o'clock. And I can go into this church at three o'clock in the morning and play drums, and I'm actually two buildings away from them, but it's all connected. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. That's uh, that's a good setup. That's yeah. that's the uh, one of the toughest things. Well, as you know, um, you know, if you're playing if you're playing guitar, or electric bass, or keyboards or something, you can always play through headphones and not, you know, not really uh, disturb anybody. But acoustic drums, forget it. It's uh, you really have to pick and choose your your rehearsal times and and all of that. Yeah. Um and you know most importantly it's a it's a fantastic sounding facility. Um so for those of you uh listening to the podcast, we had a track at the front called Brainlifter uh and there'll be another excerpt at the end uh which I think is called Blues for Mr. Charlie. Okay, yeah. And uh those were both recorded uh recorded at the sanctuary um who do you do you do your en- own engineering or do you have someone engineer oh, for you yeah so i mean sometimes we do it but um just in general we've we've partnered with a with an engineer named glenn forrest who has a he has a, a large studio in williamsburg in new york and he was recommended to me by a friend of mine a great trumpeter named kenyatta beasley uh he's kind of a trumpeter arranger that's worked all across the business, worked in jazz and also worked with, uh, you know, with contemporary groups like Lauren Hill and people like that. And, um, he, he was in my big band. And so he knew about the, knew about the studio and connected me with, with Glenn. So yeah, Glenn comes down with an, with a nice crew whenever we have, whenever we have larger productions and, uh, and it's, you know, he's made it very easy for me to make this, this transition. Well, there's nothing uh, I would imagine there's there's nothing like being able to work, you know, 30 feet away from uh, from from where you live after, especially after, you know, living in East Stroudsburg and going, you know, back and forth. Sure. Um, So so how often do you go to New York City to work or or record? Are you mostly Eastern based now or do you I'm sure you travel all over the place, but. I mean, I travel everywhere, but I mean, I get to New York maybe just just a few days a month, 
And more and more, I'm trying to redirect more of my work to 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 my home. If people need to rehearse music, I try to encourage them to come down, and we'll just make a make a nice day of it and rehearse. I teach there, you know. We'll have a big barbecue rehearsal, you know. I'm, I'm, and actually, actually, I'm trying to. There's, you know, there's always requests for uh, for me to record. And we're trying to direct more people to the studio, and it's it's starting to work. Yeah, I would suspect more with, you know, pop or more mainstream music, R and B. You know, you can do a lot of that remote if everyone's playing to a click, where, you know, they can Dropbox or, or you know, somehow get the tracks to you, and you can, you know, add your piece and then send them back. Mm-hmm. Do you do a lot of that, or I'm starting I'm starting to do it more, and um, and some of the, some of my own recordings that I'm starting to produce. I'm confident in producing basic tracks and then sending them out to people. There's there's portions of blue that I'm sent to people in Los Angeles and uh, a percussionist that lives in Denmark did some work for me. You know, it's like that. Well, that was my next question. I wasn't sure how uh, because there's such a uh, when you listen to Blue Volume One, which is uh, Jeff's latest recording. Um, the feel of all of those tracks is so fluid. I couldn't really imagine that you would be able to uh, have anybody, you know, in remote like that. But um, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, that whole process of modularly putting music together, it's, it's been a part of our, our musical culture for so long that, that it's, you know, it's becoming more commonplace. So, so that makes it be, more and more organic you know you find a find a way to psych yourself psych yourself up and bring some life to it you know now what was the impetus we're kind of working backwards and i know we started with you know what you're doing now sure um what was the impetus for you know becoming a band leader and and recording under your own name sort of as the front man rather than you know, you have an extensive, you, and you have an extensive um, career now, both as a band leader and composer, but also as a sideman earlier in your career in the in the eighties and early nineties. Um, what what was the thing that, if there was if there was any kind of moment that made you think, okay, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna go out on on my own. You know, it's it's probably more from other people encouraging me to. Uh to compose i mean i guess i guess the first uh let me say perhaps um 12 years of my professional career you know i played on a lot of people's recordings and did a lot of jazz gigs and festivals and touring and things like that and then um and then i took a a break for three years whenever uh, Branford marcellus started to work on the tonight show so i was in the tonight show band and i was in los angeles um, just, you know, it, it, it felt pretty much like a, like a day job. So the, the combination of, um, the combination of working in the same place every day with the same people basically and living in Los Angeles gave me kind of a, made me feel a kind of cultural deficit, if you were, you know, I mean, it's, it's all, it's all good, but, um, I was, wor- I went from, doing creative music and interpreting new music all the time 
to uh, to an entertainment based job, and it's it's really cool. And there's very much an art to doing that. But um, your your basic job description and premise when you play for a TV show, even the hippest TV show, your job is to generate excitement so that whenever whenever uh, the the station comes back from the commercial that the audience is excited and they're applauding that's mm-hmm. that's your, your number one job so i don't know i it just it kind of stimulated me in another way and i wanted to start really trying to focus on composition and and i was very fortunate in that respect um my good friend the late Kenny Kirkland a great keyboardist and pianist that worked with uh Winton and Bradford Marcellus and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Sting and many, many people. Uh, he was living next door to me and he was an accomplished composer. So he he encouraged me to to trust my capabilities and just really just jump into composition. So I started to accumulate music and then I moved back to New York a few years later. And, you know, I started just trying my music out on different people that I was working with. And... Everybody liked it. Everybody liked the stuff. So after after a certain period, um, Branford Marcellus got a, a position at Sony Music where he was kind of an A&R guy in addition to being an artist. And um, he signed me. He got me signed to the label. So, you know, it's it's, it's usually so, so much of, of this career, like just just choosing music and. You know, people ask me like, "How did you choose? How did you decide to to make this your life?" And it's it's usually an ex- external thing. It's usually like, you know, when I was when I was in high school, music was just another activity. You know, and I, I tried to be a wrestler. I sucked at that. I tried to be a football player. Like I, I was okay, but um, but event, but the more I, I did music, my teachers would tell my family that I should consider doing it. Right. And so I just I just ended up doing it. And it, and it's it's kind of the same with the with the band leader thing. You know, I started to accumulate accumulate music. And uh I I think it's a natural progression. You know, as you as you get older, you know, as an artist, you want to take charge of uh what you're putting out there and contribute to the contribute to the whole body of art in a personal way mm-hmm. you know so that definitely led me towards being a band leader and then the um the nature of the the music industry kind of led me to just starting my own label and and being willing to to finance my own projects and things like that so that I so that I own the, own my music well and that's i mean there's a hundred things packed into what you 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 said <laughs> at least when um I'm curious about uh the the high school years just go just to go back okay. to that for a minute like when did you first pick up the sticks what was the first thing you know everyone has like they either saw like from people in you know of my age might have been like Buddy Rich or or you know somebody like that that they see that and go and the light goes on they go oh my god what is you know what is that I need to do you know I want that's what I want to be like how did what was the moment for you you know I mean drums were always exciting I guess but um I always tell the story of when I was in the perhaps the fourth grade and uh you know there's a, there's a period of time when you take general music and you just go and you learn very basic things about music and sing songs and things like that 
And then eventually they decide to make instruments available to you. So they, the, the, the music person at the elementary school, he came around and he was like, what do you want to play? And for some reason I wanted to play trumpet. And so to this day, I suspect that this teacher lied to me because I think that he ran out of trumpets, but he didn't want to hurt my young ego. So he told me that my teeth were incorrect for playing the trumpet. And, uh, but I think he was lying. So then I, I, yeah, I just started to try to try to play drums. I had a cousin that was a pretty, pretty good R and B funk drummer. Uh, this guy, James McKinney, he was working around, working around Pittsburgh. So I got to see him. Um, yeah, I mean, Buddy Rich is easily, easily like one of the, the first drummers I saw, you know, like on television, you know, you could, you could see him and you could, you know, his, his talent was so great. His facility was so great that it it was obvious that he was pretty good, you know, and, and a funny guy and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, so I just, I just, I started to play, I started to play the drums, um, initially snare drum and, and the classical, classically oriented stuff. And then eventually I got a drum set and I played along with the radio, played along with R&B radio and classic rock radio, eventually moving into fusion and eventually backtracking, trying to research uh, traditional jazz. Mm-hmm. Were, and, were, you, were you self-taught at the beginning or did you have a teacher that kind of walked you through technique and, you know, rudiments and, and all of that kind of thing or? Oh, Okay. Yeah, I just um, from high school to to college, I was I was uh, you know studying with guys that that were affiliated with the with the symphony in Pittsburgh, um, kind of like assistant percussionists and associate percussionists with the with the with the colleges and with the Pittsburgh Symphony and uh, and uh, yeah, pretty formal pretty formal training. I was in a drum corps that was like ninth in the world. Um, you know, yeah, I was I was studying the drums, studying snare drum and percussion pretty formally. Then I, I majored in classical percussion at Duquesne University, so I studied with some guys in the symphony there, and uh, and I mostly kind of played the drum set on the side. Um, I was I was in an R and B band while I was in while I was at Duquesne University. And then eventually I relocated to to Berkeley, but before I did, I was um, the the main drum set teacher that I had is a guy, um, this guy named Roger Humphreys that was recommended to me. Roger Humphreys is a great drummer. He's still alive and playing better than ever in the in the Pittsburgh area. And for jazz fans, he's on uh, he's on the the original version of a song for my father by Horace Silver. And he's he's about twenty years old on that recording. So I I learned some things about the essence of the drum set and jazz and just the general type of feeling that that you know to to go for to just to give it like a, a bluesy flavor and make the music you know be exciting. But um yeah, so I mean I, I studied in Pittsburgh and then I went to Berkeley College for about two years and then I moved to New York. What what was the impetus to move from Duquesne to Berkeley? Um, it sounds crazy, but the impetus actually was 
was more classical in origin. Um, while I was at Duquesne University, I was I was I was studying there with the with the assistant timpanist of the symphony, a guy named Bill Schneiderman, and um, he had me really, really pretty deep in some some older techniques that I didn't have a an appreciation for then, but now I appreciate them more. But um, I guess for as far as classical percussion, it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty young area, just as far as repertoire. So if you if you when when you're studying it, this this like there's been a lot of new repertoire since I went to school because that was a long time ago. But a lot of what he would give me would would be you know it was a lot of Bach and stuff like that. It was transcriptions of um, of of concertos for for violin or for or for trumpet or for other instruments there there wasn't a there wasn't a whole lot of um repertoire for for percussion right and um you know at the same time i was i, I got exposed to to more contemporary classical music and new music uh through other teachers and i wanted to explore that more and also i wanted to i wanted to study with a a great timpanist who actually coincidentally just passed away like probably six months ago, the great Vic Firth, Vic Firth yep. of the Boston Symphony. So Vic Firth taught at the New England Conservatory, and uh, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to transfer there. And so I had an, another teacher, a great teacher named Michael Coomer, that recommended you know, applying to a few schools. So I applied to the New England Conservatory and the Cincinnati Conservatory and the Cleveland, Cleveland Institute of Music and maybe like North Texas State or something like that. And I, I applied and I auditioned in a few places, West Virginia University. And, but then, but I was really set on New England because I really admired Vic Firth. Mm-hmm. And, um, so in the interim, I was at home the summer before I was going to choose my school. And uh, a guy in my neighborhood had just gone to Berkeley. He's a guitarist that lived up the street from me. So he came to my house and we were hanging out. And he was like, man, you should just go to Berkeley, man. You want to move to Boston and go to New England? You should just go to Berkeley, man. There's all these guys are there. And he starts describing to me people that are well-known now. He's like, yeah, there's this guitar player, Kevin Eubanks. He's really great, you know. And then there's this other guitar player, Mike Stern. He's, man, you wait till you hear him. Nobody knows about him, but he's really great. So he described to me people like this and and Cindy Blackman and Tommy Campbell and, uh, and uh, you know, the guy that played work with Zappa, Steve Vai. Steve Vai, right? Yeah, yeah, and all, all yeah. these people. And he, he's telling me about these people and how, how incredible they are. And these, were, and these were all your peers at Berkeley, which is pretty, uh, for you know, for musicians that know – know exactly who all these guys are sure. uh it's it's a pretty uh hard thing to imagine being able to just hang out with with uh uh with all these all these people um yeah yeah so so basically what happened was i um i wasn't i wasn't able to get a personal audition at the new england conservatory and so i decided to just move to boston and go to berkeley and try to try to study with these these other teachers on the side but then i got in the school and really fell in love with the music and you know it was just like a ton of a ton of musicians uh the great victor bailey um oh man you know i met Branford marcellus there uh donald harrison was my roommate um walter beasley um this it's a million 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 
cats that were there. Greg Osby, yep. Billy Kilson. It's a, it's a pretty hefty list, you know. As an observer, you know, that is is the beginning or maybe the definitive thing in your career that, that really steers you into onto the path that you're on now. Yeah. Yeah, it made me want to really focus on the drum set. I, I guess whenever whenever I was in the conservatory in Pittsburgh, I want I, I loved the drum set, but I wanted it to be part of my whole thing. I wanted to be a, a well-rounded percussionist that also played drum set that could do studio work and work on film scores and put down a, put down a drum set track, but put down a marimba track or put down a timpani track and things like that. That was kind of my career objective at the time. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, I just ended up trying to be a, a scholar of, of American music and eventually world music. And, and, uh, I became more aware of, uh, the drum sets significance to, to America that, it, that it was invented in America. Um, uh, the more I, I studied about jazz music and American music in general, I, I started to become more aware of the, you know, the the significance of African Americans in relation to the music. So, so I felt like just just more connected in general, and I wanted to try to apply my talents in that in that fashion. And and for those that are you know from some other walk of life, if you're a painter or a non-musician, you know, the things that Jeff's describing, um, when, when you're an undergrad and in a, in a percussion program, um, drum set is a different animal than concert percussion, which is, you know, timpani and, uh, keyboards like marimba, xylophone and, and bells and things. And all of it, they're different skill sets. So if you're a runner, it's like being a marathon runner versus being, good at you know a relay runner or steeplechase or some other track and field event it, they're different animals so part of what's so interesting i didn't really appreciate how um how big a space classical training had occupied in your story uh until i started getting it because i've always seen you as a as a jazz guy mm -hmm. with with um with with you know marsalis and and everybody else so um you know, knowing what you know now, what, what, you know, for younger people who are starting out or in high school or, you know, even at the undergrad level, um, you know, any advice for, you know, I, I think being well-rounded is probably, you know, be as well-rounded as you can is probably the, the message, but, um, you know, any other, any other overarching themes to, to that education, you know, piece? Uh, you know, I would I would just say the that really, really um you know, there's there's all these compartments and things, you know. It's like uh, you, you know, you should try to be versatile and then just general general rules of of you know, the workplace kick in, like being on time and being you know, cool to work with and things like that and things outside of what your specialty is. But I think that specifically with music that, um, that really loving music takes care of a lot of things. It makes you, it makes you want to practice, you know, if you love music because you don't want to, because you want to play with good people and you don't want to be a drag to them. So that makes you, 
focus on your instrument and prepare so that you're, you know, so that you're stimulating to work with on a, on a musical level. It makes you be on time, you know, you know, so that you don't inconvenience anybody because as you, you dig the privilege of making music so much. Yeah. You know? That's, that's the number one way to infuriate everybody else is to be late. Yeah. yeah, for, yeah. You know, and it's, it sounds silly to even have to say, but, um, and I don't want to sound like, you know, these, these kids, these, this younger generation, but, you know, sometimes with, uh, my own students, um, I find more the younger the students are, the more likely it is that you're waiting around for them, which is not a good th- a way to start out. You know, punctuality is uh, – it's like the easiest way to impress people, yeah. I think. You know, showing up on time and being, you know, prepared. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can definitely say, you know, I mean, what, whatever my contribution is and whatever, however I, I play – um, sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a, a really good fit for some people and sometimes some artists, they just want the experience of it. And I might not be completely compatible with, with what they're trying to create, but at, I think, I feel like one of the main things that they'll get from me is that I care, that I care and I'm really, really trying. So it might suck, but I'm trying, <laughs> I want, you know, I, I aspire for them to be able to create what they're, what they're trying to do. And I just, I really want to help people. You know, I really appreciate the privilege of being able to make music and take care of my family. Do you want to, uh, spend a little bit of time about the new record, which, uh, blue volume one just was released when, uh, that was released October of last year. Or was it March of this? I'm sorry, I should have. Uh, when did that come out? It probably came out like May or June of last year or something like that. I think Volume Two was was trying to come out by the by the end of last year, but that probably won't be out until um, like late summer. But anyway, the the Blue series, um, you know, I mean, I, I started my own label, I guess about seven years ago or something like that. Uh, Dark Key Music. And um, started, you know, I think I put out about three or four other things on on the on the label. And um, uh, blue, I just I took a break after after my my family CD, which I guess must have come out like four years ago or something like that. Um, I started started my family. I'm 56 years old, but I have. Uh, two five-year-old girls that are fraternal twins and obviously a younger wife and stuff like that. And uh, so I I took a break partially for that and also because uh, my mother passed. My mother passed, so I just really took a a break to to install the family and make sure everything is cool and settle down and get my, just reset my priorities. So um, these blue records, I guess volume one came out last year. Volume two will be released this year. And they're basically a collection of of blues and ballads. You know, some of the, some of the forms are a little abstract and it's dressed up in various ways, but, but that's the, the, the core of, of these recordings. And they're, you know, dedicated to my mother. Um, Anything specific about the the record you want to know? Were were they were volume one and two recorded in the same set of sessions, or were they conceived as a unit initially? Like, how did it evolve? The okay, two records. Okay, 
Um, you know, I just I just started writing things that were kind of um you know, I mean when you when you analyze them, they're 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 pretty bluesy in nature. I was just trying to go more for a feeling. I, I um just as far as my my recordings that I put out, I kind of go back and forth between um things that are things that showcase they might showcase like improvisation or showcase drumming more i guess this blue series is more hopefully more listener friendly and it's it's more it's less about wow listen to this record jeff is really playing some incredible drum stuff here it's i i, I kind of take a hit and I'm just I'm just trying to be like the the guy in the band, and and it's really more about composition and things like that. So so I guess this uh, the first blue. There's maybe two covers on there. There's a cover of a Thelonious Monk song, and there's a cover of a song by Max Roach um, from his uh, Freedom Suite, from the Freedom Now Suite back in the, back in the '60s. Um, which was kind of like a protest song, you know, but the, yeah, there's, it's just, it's, it's, it's just kind of a, a zone where, where that hopefully people that are not aficionados can get into it and get stimulated. And, and hopefully there's at least one or two tracks on there for, for anyone. Yeah. It, it you know, I had listened uh, to it all the way through uh, the last couple of days and, you know, there's, you know, there's there's ballad. You know, there are ballad type moments. There's aggressive type moments. Yeah. There are, um, and it it, you know, it does strike me. I I don't think saying it's accessible to people is a, is a bad thing. I think no. that's a good thing because, yeah. um, you know, we want good music to be, you know, connect with as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, but like something like Brilliant Corners the band shifts gears so many times in, and sometimes in the course of like two measures, you'll go from like, you know, second, if it's a car, you're going from like second gear to fifth and then back. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's really, it's interesting to listen to as a musician because I'm trying to figure out what's the trigger (laughs) that, that tells everybody to, to switch the field to double time or, or, uh, or to go up tempo or something, but it's, uh, everybody should check it out. And, um, you know, again, there's two excerpts on this podcast, uh, one at the, at the intro, and then, uh, there'll be another excerpt, um, at the end and we'll have a link on the podcast's website on creativeconfidential.net on Jeff's episode page. There will be links where you can just click through and you'll get sent to his record label where you can, you know, you can acquire, um, any of the recordings. Um, do you have now? Have you signed other artists to your label, or is it exclusively for your work? It's open. It's open. No, I would. Um, a couple of a couple of guys have, have approached me, and I, th- I would say um, next year I'll, I'll I'll look into some other artists. You know, I, I definitely wouldn't have mind having some other improvising artists. I wouldn't mind having a, you know, the the right singer songwriter that's a, that's a good fit i think that would i think that would be good um because i have access to so many 
improvising creative musicians and also you know just musicians from every every walk of life i have i have access to a lot of instrumentalists and also i'm also interested in in just purely writing songs so i think that the the right singer songwriter would would be would be great i could throw them throw them in with with instrumentalists that i know and stuff like that and it could be very interesting um but as of now i've recorded for the label my wife is my wife laura watts she did a one pretty pretty nice recording on the label also but it's but it's open it's open well tell and while while you had mentioned it tell us a little bit about laura when when is she a, a singer or an instrumentalist or well she's a trumpeter and composer arranger and uh yeah she was born in michigan but raised in australia and she uh she has a, a unique thing she has a unique thing a very personal personal style of writing she's you know, easily a world class arranger and composer. She, she's she, she's able to come up with with very cohesive ideas very quickly, and uh, you know, based in jazz, but 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 it it ends up being kind of across the board. You know, just uh, touching touching on a lot of different styles and things. Yeah. So we we talked a little bit about Blue Volume One, and that's already out uh what are you working on now what do you have uh, going on currently well I'm, I'm always composing all the time and uh so now I'm, I'm putting some finishing touches on blue volume two um i guess one of the things that that make that made volume one a little different for me is that i you know I, i've i'm trying to, to write more songs and and feature feature vocalists in, in addition to um in addition to instrumentalists. So I guess on, on volume one, uh, two people sing. Who sings? There's a great trombonist named Frank Lacey, who's also a great blues singer. He sings on a track. And um, there's a great kind of underground R&B vocalist named Frank McComb. And he's he's featured on it. He's featured on a track. I guess I first met Frank McComb in conjunction with... Um, Branford Marcellus's Buckshot LaFunk kind of crossover project. Um, volume two, in volume two, as of now, there's a. Uh, I've, I've, I've written something for uh, the great Kurt Alling to sing. He came and sang that, sang, uh, sang a, an original song that I wrote. Um, I did an arrangement of a, a popular song, but in in Spanish and in, in an Afro Cuban style for. Um, for a lady named uh, Siamara Lagat, who's um, pretty much the leading voc- vocalist of Cuba, she's a friend of mine, um, and she actually played played Celia Cruz on Broadway. Um, you know, there'll be some other guests, and uh, Steve Coleman is on the the on part of it, part of the upcoming. Uh, Yep, we had yeah. we had Steve on the on the on one of the I think on the second episode we did. Yeah, Steve was a guest. Yeah, Steve came by the studio and put some stuff down. Uh, Russell Malone, Mark Whitfield. Um, you know, there'll there'll be some other guests and, and things, but I, I look forward to putting that out. Um, I'll say by August. All right. Well, we will keep our uh, we will keep our eyes open for that one, and uh, and we have. I would love to do this again at some point because we haven't even talked about the Steelers. Uh, that's a whole nother. <laughs> uh, my my mom's from Latrobe and my dad is from that area too. So oh, we man. we were we were not allowed to cheer for anybody else. I can dig it when we were growing up. So we'll come back and uh, 
talk some football. But uh, Jeff, it's it's really been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, for coming today. No thanks. I'll come back. I'll come back anytime. All right, it's great. listening to creative confidential with brian tuck to have brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements or if you have legal matters you want to discuss contact him at tucklaw.com that's t-u-k-law.com for future episodes please subscribe to creative confidential on itunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman, socialmedia.com.